welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, you can open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. That's got kind of a new ring to it, doesn't it? Second Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul has written this church again. It's the second time. And those who have reconstructed Paul's uh, missionary journey timeline conclude that this letter must have been written a very short time after 1 Thessalonians, probably within just a few months, certainly less than a year later. And uh, one evidence is how verse 1 reveals that, that Paul and Silvanus, we also call him Silas, and Timothy are, are still together. That, that part of the ministry team is still together. So as they reconstruct the timeline, they can see this is a very short, uh, short period between these two letters. If you remember our study of 1 Thessalonians, after being driven from Thessalonica by persecution, Paul and Silas camped out for a time in Corinth. During this period, they sent Timothy back to check up on the Thessalonian church. And when Timothy returned with a good report about how that church had persevered through many tribulations, uh, Paul wrote the first of these two letters. The purpose of 1 Thessalonians was to command and to encourage that church to persevere until the parousia. We studied that word parousia. It is a Greek term uh, which we learned means the second coming of Christ. In fact, five times, five times in just five chapters, Paul cited this parousia uh, giving assurance that Christ would return. Um, folks, certainly Christians who are suffering in this world uh, could use a little bit of reassurance that this isn't going to continue forever. Uh, a little bit of reassurance that when this is all over, it's going to be worth it when Christ appears. Uh, therefore, a significant, uh, significant part uh, of the emphasis of the first letter, it climaxed at the rapture of the church, at this parousia of Christ, which Paul also described as the day of the Lord. Uh, it will come like a thief in the night. Um, well, it appears from 2 Thessalonians, this is chapter 2 and verse 2, we will see in a few weeks, that false teachers had arrived in Thessalonica and had distorted Paul's teaching claiming that this day of the Lord had already come. That's right. A fraudulent source had told the Thessalonians, chapter 2 and verse 1, uh, that they had missed the parousia, that they missed our gathering together with Jesus in the clouds, and they insisted this day of the Lord had already come. Well, uh-oh, that could cause problems, right? Now, a hypothetical question would be 
that if they actually had missed the second coming of Christ, uh, what then would these Christians have left to look forward to? Would they just continue to endure affliction indefinitely? And for what purpose would that be? You know, that idea may seem a little bit silly to us. It obviously does. Uh, but written in 51 AD, 1 Thessalonians was only the second letter of Paul. Paul had only written Galatians and now 1 Thessalonians. Um, Thessalonica did not possess the wealth of scriptural information uh, that we have in our Bibles today. And if someone had started suggesting that you missed the rapture, well, that could potentially be a matter of concern. And the motive of this, this false teaching, surely inspired by the enemy, uh, was probably to convince that little church, you know, just, just give up. Might as well just give up. You missed it, folks. Jesus has already come and gone uh, you might as well quit waiting and enduring all of this affliction. Well, might as well just go back to your old lives. Do you think that returning to your life prior to Christian conversion could be a real temptation for some Christians? Especially those who'd, who needed to suffer great loss to persevere in the faith. Oh yeah, that... that Inaccurate teaching can, can be a real danger to the church. Christians might resort back to their life prior to Christ. And um, you might not believe this, but uh, the Thessalonians had been told that there had been a secret rapture. Yeah, no, no kidding. That's what they've been told. Uh, the Lord had come, and select people had just disappeared along with Jesus. Uh, but there was no evidence left, and nobody saw it. And the rest of y'all who are remaining here today, y'all were just left behind. Nobody would ever buy that idea, would they? Now, I personally don't believe that these Thessalonians bought into it. I don't think they bought into the secret rapture because Paul gives them a sterling endorsement in this letter. They had not given up. But they probably still had lingering questions about the events surrounding this day of the Lord after reading the first letter. So once Paul heard that Thessalonica had been told that the day of the Lord had already come, again chapter 2 and verse 2, uh, he next writes 2 Thessalonians to offer clarification of the circumstances surrounding this parousia, this day of the Lord's return. And here in this letter, we possess Paul's reaction, Paul's response to the proposal of a secret rapture. It begins in chapter 1, as we will observe over the next couple of weeks. Uh, here's Paul's conclusion. You ready? He says, you can't miss it. Whether you are a believer or unbeliever, the second coming of Christ with his mighty angels in flaming fire, as we will see in verse 7, it can't accidentally be missed. In fact, in Luke 17, verse 30, Jesus also predicts, 
that there will come those who will propose that there has been a secret coming of Christ. There Jesus says, they will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not chase after them. Jesus says, for just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And in Matthew 24 and verse 27, Jesus says concerning this, this same event, this, this day of, that's like lightning from one end of the sky to the other, uh, Jesus continues saying the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give out its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So scripture assures us that Jesus isn't going to run a trick play. He's going to hand the ball off somewhere where nobody sees it and doesn't end around on all of us. Thus, a primary purpose for Paul's writing 2 Thessalonians was to correct the misunderstanding that they had missed the coming of Christ and unwittingly had been left behind scratching their head. That idea, folks, is completely inconsistent with the return of Christ as it is repeatedly described in Scripture of him coming in great power and glory. And Paul's going to reveal in this letter, and chapter 1 will assure you, uh, you can't miss the perusy of Christ. Paul begins in his greeting by referencing his entire ministry team, from whom they've all come to know by now, uh, Paul could have probably be opened his greeting saying, well, Paul, from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, hey, guess what? We're all still here too. Um, but he'll get around to that. And in typical Pauline fashion, verse 1 simply says this, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Much like Peter, grace and peace to all of you. In the fullest measure was Peter's prayer. And uh, this is almost identical to his greeting in the first letter, except this time Paul repeats this phrase, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? He repeats it. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Doing so surely offers reassurance of how that Thessalonian church remains an object of God's grace. You haven't missed anything. You are an object of God's grace, and of course that both the Father and the Son remain the source of grace and peace. That fountain of God's grace 
that, that source or that, or that river flowing with God's grace, that, that river of divine favor. Folks, it, blow, it flows straight from the Father and straight from the Son directly into Thessalonica, just as God's grace and peace flows straight into Port St. Lucie Bible Church. God offers His grace and His peace to all. And in case you're struggling to understand that term grace, you know, some can get confused or, or maybe you've been told, you know, that, that's something that we say a few words before each meal, say a few words of grace, depicting some thanks. Obviously, we do that. Um, if you're struggling with an understanding of grace, I hope to remedy uh, that today. The ancient meaning of the word portrayed the benevolence of a sovereign ruler granting a special favor to one of his subjects. It was a picture of a sovereign ruler doing a favor for one of his subjects. That means if one of the king's subjects needed a favor, by granting that favor, the king showed grace. In fact, the Hebrew term, folks, it implies to stoop down. It can even mean to step off the throne, to stoop down, to grant assistance to someone beneath you who has need. And with God, divine grace can describe His providing favor or assistance to us in, in any number of ways, but grace is particularly evident by God sending His only Son to endure the punishment for our sins on the cross. That's why we often describe grace, G-R-A-C-E, with this acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense, right? That's grace. But more broadly, grace describes God stooping down to supply you with whatever you can provide for yourself. Salvation, of course, is number one on that list through the cross. For the Christian, this opening greeting can be received from Paul as saying, Look to God for what you need, for He and His Son are willing to stoop down and serve as your source of grace and peace. Folks, that's verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, when we say God is gracious... He truly is gracious. And we acknowledge that He provides us with, with everything that we need. Not always everything we ask for or want, but by grace He provides us with everything that we need, materially, socially, spiritually, to sustain us through this pil during this pilgrimage on earth. He provides us everything we need during this pilgrimage and if you have an earnest need, look to your king. Hebrews 
says of Jesus Christ, who is eternally God, who has become flesh, for him who stooped down to be born as a man, Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a promise. The source of grace and peace, says the writer of Hebrews, is Christ. He sits on a throne of grace. Folks, who, want, who would not want access to that? Who wouldn't want access to the throne of grace? Sadly, we're going to discover next week there are actually many people who don't want it. They don't wish to live on earth as the king's subjects. Instead, they, they propose, you know, I, I think I'd just rather go it alone. I'll go my own way. Boy, if you were in uh, adult Bible class this morning, Mike Clements was teaching the parable on um, the servants in the vineyard. And uh, just a quick summation, uh, the servants originally were designated Israel, and the owner of the vineyard sent his representatives, his servants, his slaves, repeatedly again and again. And uh, they beat one, they wounded another on the head, they killed another, and all of these, these servants that were sent were turned away by those who were the keeper of the vineyard, speaking again towards the Jews. And um, the owner of the vineyard said, I'll send my son. I'll send him, and uh, surely they'll respect him. And when the son got there, they, what did they say? They said, let's kill him. Why? Do you remember? He was the heir. If we kill the heir, we'll have the vineyard, what we have here, for ourselves. What did they want to do? They wanted to live in the vineyard according to their own terms, that's something. We want to be in the vineyard. We want to enjoy all that we have here materially in the world. But we want it on our terms. I'll let you ask Mike Clements what the owner of the vineyard said he was going to do when he returns. Um, you can't have it both ways, folks. You want access to the throne of grace. You have to be willing to live as subjects of the king and enjoy all of the grace and peace that the king provides. There is no going it alone through life. But Christians, we are ecstatic. We are ecstatic to be recipients of this grace which, which God our king grants to us liberally without reproach, uh, and this serves as an explanation beginning in verse 3 as to why Paul offers thanks to God 
for the wonderful results in Thessalonica. God has served as their source of grace and peace. So it is God who receives the thanks. Speaking jointly for Silvanus and Timothy, Paul writes, Oh, we ought always to give thanks to God. For you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Folks, their shared experience with one another is a result of God's grace. Everything that they're enjoying as a local church, it's a consequence of grace. And therefore, you'll find throughout Scripture that, that grace and peace are consistently a subject of the apostles' prayers. Asking for grace and peace. God answers those prayers, as we'll see as we progress. Peter opens both of his letters with grace and peace. And as we observe during our scripture reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, he opens like this. To those who, and he names several regions, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. That's offered in a form of a prayer, folks. That's what Paul wants, a Peter wants for those churches. In 2 Peter chapter 1 then, he opens like this, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, a scene that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Grace has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Again, Peter ensures that grace is God supplying us with everything that we need pertaining to godliness, a godly life. Still, God isn't obligated. He isn't bound to give us grace. He's, he's not a debtor to anyone. He doesn't owe. Um, so when things go well for us together, for the local church when they go well together, it's always a result of God's grace. It's always a result of God's grace. It, it's not something that we do. It isn't something that we can conjure up, that we can take credit for in any way. Uh, what we can take credit for is when things go poorly. <laughs> that is a consequence of sin that still dwells in us, battles against our spirit. The old sin nature is surely still there. But when things go well, it is a display of God's grace. Therefore, and just as Paul suggested in verse 3, it is fitting to give God thanks on this day of our congregational meeting. I trust you've had an opportunity to review the pastor's report uh, and the budget. Um, boy, we can give thanks for everything we've experienced in this church. Everything that God has shown us is grace for all of the affection, for all of the joy, for all of the generosity, for all of the love 
that is shared one to another, Paul says, we just ought to give God thanks. Because every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. It's coming down from the Father of lights, said James. That, that's specifically speaking to salvation, a gift from God. And therefore, all is to be 100% attributed to the grace of God that He has supplied us through Christ Jesus, His Son. Folks, if it were not for God's grace, it matters not how new or how big the building is, how impressive the music, or how alluring and appealing the preaching, these elements alone by themselves do not ensure God's grace. Instead, evidence of God's grace and peace in Thessalonica was visible through their faith being greatly enlarged and an ever-growing love toward one another. And, we'll see in verse 4, their faithful endurance of persecutions and tribulations. And these serve, according to verse 5, look with me, these serve as a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Faith, love, endurance. These are evidence of God's grace. And God's judgment is always righteous. God's judgment, of course, will be displayed in the punishment of unbelievers at Christ's coming. That will be in verse, verses 6 through 10. That's not what we're talking about here. God's righteous judgment is on display through believers who love one another, their faith greatly increasing, endurance through times of persecution, and perseverance in the faith. That's all visible evidence of God's righteous judgment. You might say, how so? Well, verse 5 says this is a, a plain indication. Your translation might say a manifest evidence. And, and Paul is initially pointing back at the evidence revealed in verses 3 and 4. Faith increasing, love for one another, endurance during affliction, it is these characteristics, it is these things that serve as a plain indication, a manifest evidence that, that God has judged rightly in deeming us worthy of the kingdom. Think about that. That God has judged us worthy of His kingdom. Sinners those who have done evil and wicked deeds, He has made righteous. Scripture says that is a righteous judgment. How so? Well, these evidence provide testimony we're true Christians. They serve as evidence our sins have been judged justly by God at the cross. He has judged righteously. They assure these evidence... These forms of evidence assure 
that we have a new life in Christ, growing in love, faith increasing, enduring during affliction. Meanwhile, a lack of faith growing, an absence of love toward the brethren, a capitulation, an easy capitulation when afflicted, and an unwillingness to suffer loss for the kingdom of God, i.e., that being Christ's kingdom, uh, they serve as a plain indication or a manifest evidence that your sins have not been judged rightly at the cross. If that is truly the case, your sins will be judged rightly in verses 6 through 10. Either way, God always remains just. And God always judges righteously. When God declares you innocent, or or justified is a word we often use, on the basis of your faith in Jesus Christ, your faith in Christ's suffering for your sin debt on the cross, when God declares you innocent, since your debt has been paid, He remains perfectly just. And your faith in Christ will make itself plainly evident for all to see. And when Christ returns, God will be hailed as righteous, as holy and righteous when counting us worthy of His kingdom, for which indeed we are suffering. Folks, this is immensely important. Much more so in Thessalonica and the suffering they were enduring, which we don't quite yet uh, experience in the U.S., but places around the world surely do, Christians around the world. Um, The people watching us in the world would conclude that persecution and affliction of of, of Christians, they would say those are plain indications that your faith is all in vain. You're being afflicted, you're being punished, you're being persecuted, you're suffering loss. Boy, your God sure doesn't come through with you. And a righteous God, they would insist, would never permit such things to happen to those whom He loves. Some might even say, you know, it looks to us like you've been left behind. They'd say, are you sure you haven't missed the rapture? So this is what was happening in Thessalonica. But Jesus indeed declares in His Sermon on the Mount, this also came came up in adult Bible class this morning, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets sent to the vineyard. Folks, do you truly believe that? Do you truly believe that you are blessed when you are persecuted? Or have you swallowed the lie that you're only blessed 
when things are going really well and your pockets are full and your driveway has a new car in it. Because that is a false gospel going out today. It's a prosperity gospel that says that you can know that you belong to God and that you are a Christian because everything's just going silky smooth in life. Folks, that cannot be reconciled to Scripture. The Apostle Paul wrote this to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You and I might not need to endure 39 lashes on five different occasions in a public forum as did the Apostle Paul. Hopefully we don't have to. But you will be persecuted for your love that increases for the brethren. These same brethren in Thessalonica who believe God has given only one Savior for the whole world, only one through whom the whole world must be saved, meaning there is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. The world would say, the audacity. And he's the same Savior through whom the whole world will be judged. His, his name's Jesus. By God's grace, your love will increase for those same brethren, those same beloved brethren who declare it's not Caesar. It's not the government we look to. It's not the government we bow down to. It's not Caesar who is Lord of all, but truly Christ who is Lord. And we need to recognize and remember from Paul's first letter to Thessalonica, folks, it was dangerous to associate with these Christians. It was dangerous. It brought persecution. You might lose your job. You might suffer loss. You you might endure affliction for a decision to remain identified with Christ and His church. And when you do, It becomes an evidence of God's grace and peace in your life. For Peter said, when you do what is right and you suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor, literally grace. This finds grace with God. The ability to endure severe hardship for Christ is a manifest evidence of God's grace and peace and his grace will be sufficient for us in all circumstances and may it be multiplied to you and may grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure that is our prayer today and since grace and peace are sufficient for Christ's church when it was under great duress in the first century when Paul and Peter both wrote, how much more should we give thanks and should we show our thanks to God for His grace and peace on the day when things are going relatively well? How much more should we be thankful 
for what we have and for grace that God has shown us. That which we endure together, the, the increase in love, the, the enlarged faith that we share, and the strength to endure our circumstances, they serve as a plain indication They are an indicator, a manifest evidence that God has proven once again himself righteous in Port St. Lucie Bible Church. And now among these saints, our love for God and for one another are a consequence of the sins that we have had judged at the cross. Today we offer God our thanks. Folks, I don't know about you, I'm finding myself perfectly content with God's grace. That's it. Grace and peace. As God told Paul as he suffered, my grace is sufficient for you. And like the apostles, we must continue to pray for God's grace and peace at Port St. Lucie Bible Church. What we are observing in Thessalonica... It is an answer to Paul's prayers from 1 Thessalonians. He prayed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12 that they would increase and that they would abound in love for one another. And in this greeting, uh, the opening of his second letter, he says, we find how God's grace has increased. Thanks be to God for his grace.